From the Los Angeles Times, this is Can't Stop Watching. Your TV faves on their TV faves. I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. On today's episode, we can't stop watching J. Smith Cameron. She plays Jerry Kelman, Waystar Royko's corporate attorney on HBO Succession. Jay tells me why she thinks Jerry's become such a big hit with the fans. The time is right to have a middle-aged, professional, female character who knows more than anyone else in the room, is very cagey veteran, who artfully avoids conflict when she can, but is totally up to the conflict if it comes her way, and who really knows all the players. It's kind of fun. She's the conciliary of the group. Jay also shares her take on what Jerry would be plotting during the pandemic and whether there would be any more late-night phone calls with Roman Roy. Plus, Jay tells us how she feels about getting back on set for season three. Just a heads up, everyone, we recorded this interview in mid-May. Let's get started. Jay, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. So how are you doing? Well, up and down, like most people. I mean, I have good days and bad days, like everyone so far, knock wood. And uh, we're about to embark on a crazy social experiment. We have a teenage daughter. You know, I feel for these teenagers because their high school career has just been aborted, like, boom. And right when they reach the glory home stretch, you know. So we're trying to arrange for her with her, just her, her besties. And we rented a house we're about to move into um, outside of the city to quarantine. And we're all kind of getting ready and trying to get, you know, tested. And everybody's been observing the protocol. So not good. But I guess a lot of people are doing that at this point. What's a typical day like for you right now? Like, have you gotten to any like household projects you've been wanting to do? Are you reading? Are you watching TV? All of the above. And yet with the concentration of a, I don't know what, a flea. I was looking, kind of thinking the good side of this would be I would organize all my closets and I would organize the pantry and I would read all these books. And I I generally read a lot anyway. So I thought, okay, um, I would learn Italian, uh, which is an ongoing <laughs> little bit half-assed project of mine anyway. But we like to visit Italy and uh, I am half Italian. And so that's been like a pet project. So anyway, I had all these goals and I have good days where I do do those things, followed by two days where I'm just kind of paralyzed, like halfway in one project and halfway in another, and then just end up doing nothing. And then I've, I realized from reading Twitter and from talking to other people that that's a very common response to the conditions right now. But it's hard not to get frustrated with yourself about it. Yeah, I keep thinking about I'm once we get out of this thing, I'm going to be so mad I didn't do all those things I should have done when I had the time. But also, I just... I just don't have the energy, like mentally, to do a lot. Tell me what TV shows you've been watching. I need to know. This is a TV podcast. Give it to me. Okay, let me think. Well, we've been watching um, Killing Eve. We watched the end of Homeland, which we'd followed for many years, and we're frustrated over the long wait. We love a good thriller. I've rewatched some things from the past that I love that I hadn't seen in a long time, like the original House of Cards. Uh, which I'm sort of halfway rewatched so far, and the old I Claudius from the 80s or maybe 70s. Actually, the tone of it, I remember when I first got cast in Succession, I was trying to figure out the tone because it's definitely a drama, but it's also um, just about a group of everyone's conniving. And that's I Claudius is about the lineage of who becomes emperor. 
and the incredible lengths that certain ambitious people go to to keep people out of the line of succession. So I kind of, I didn't know Jesse very well yet. And I, I said to him at a table read early on, because I didn't know that my, my character was hired just for four episodes to begin with. So I thought it was sort of passing through and I was just trying to make sure I had the sense of it. I hadn't been in the pilot. I, I didn't really, I was catching up. I said, is it kind of like I, Claudius? And he was kind of like, actually, that's pretty good. That's pretty, that's about right. So I have been meaning in the back of my mind to watch I, Claudius, and this gave me the opportunity. So I've been watching I, Claudius. I watched all of the leftovers finally. It was a weird choice because it's so dystopian. But maybe for that reason, it was just incredibly riveting. I also just think it's a really well done show and uh, the acting on that is so great. Oh, I love the good fight. Really getting a lot of that. And probably the minute we hang up, I'll, I'll think of three more things. But What do you think Jerry would be doing during this pandemic? Plotting, I suppose. She'd probably be the one of the, out of the group who would be studying, by the end of it, would be an expert epidemiologist. <laughs> but, you know, just autodidact. And she would have learned everything she could. And she would figure out who she could be around, who she couldn't, and under what terms. And I think she'd be the troubleshooter. So I think she would be both plotting and also just quickly trying to cram all she could learn about pandemics. Would there be calls with Roman? Of course. <laughs> I mean, I would think so. You'd have to ask Roman because Jerry doesn't instigate those. But I, if I had to guess, I would think probably a, a particular, like maybe even more than usual because circumstances make people very needy and desperate and everybody would be clutching for everything. I would think. I can see Jerry on the, you know, elliptical in her apartment, in her penthouse. Like, you know. <laughs> I hadn't given it much thought. It's a good question. <laughs> Which succession location would you want to be quarantined in? I for sure would want Shiv's place. Oh, of the New York apartments? Well, we don't see very much of Jerry's, but I thought Jerry's was quite a creamy pad. I really thought it was very nice. I don't know about personally which one I would want to be in, but I think Jerry would want to be home. That's her refuse from all the crazy. Well, Jerry has really become a fan favorite character on the show. And before I ask you why you think that is, like, talk to me about where you were at in your life and your career when you said yes to this audition. Well, I had worked on this show, Rectify. But before that, and really since that, I'm primarily think of myself as a theater actress and had done loads of off-Broadway and Broadway. My husband's a playwright and a filmmaker, and I also have done a fair number of indie movies, studio movies too some, but sort of towards the end of Rectify and going into um, Succession, I did the Apple plays. They had ultimately had to replace me for my character. I don't know if you know what those are. There are a series of plays written by Richard Nelson that were the public by the time the fourth year, it was our last year of Rectify, and um, Richard really needed a commitment that we would not only be available to do that, but then do all four plays in rep. And I just didn't know when Rectify would start back, and I'd signed a contract with Rectify. So I dropped out. It turned out it didn't conflict, naturally, but it was good because I got to do this other part I've always wanted to do, which is Juno and Juno and the Paycap, which is a famous Irish play by Sean O'Casey, and that was an incredible experience. Anyway, so I was doing that, and then I had done a little um, recurring part on Search Party, the show that I get a kick out of. And then I got this audition 
And again, it was supposed to be a um, recurring role, but just for a limited number of episodes. And it was originally, you may have heard this, originally written for a man. But I think, you know, they're all quite savvy and hip, those writers. And so I think they were, I think maybe, I think it was Doug Abel, the then casting director who suggested to put me on tape, but perhaps they were, you know, also thinking that, I don't know. Uh, I'm thinking of possibly a woman because there are a lot of women general counsels for these big, big corporations. And they thought a good opportunity to you to make maybe a, a female role. I went on tape only. I had not, I tried to watch the pilot on a link that kept not loading. So I really had a little taste of it, but I didn't really even know how it ended. And I didn't have the script that the scenes, the audition scenes were from. I realized now because some of them were Frank's lines and, so, you know, they were just like a, just something for me to read. So I, I went in and, and taped for Doug Abel. Then they wanted to call me back. But at that time, my mother was in hospice. I couldn't go back for the call back in person. It was like, you know, the time to be home with her. And I thought, okay, well, that looked like a really funny and very interesting. And like I could tell, even though I didn't know what was going on in the scenes, I could tell the writing was really precise and peculiar and interesting. And I knew I was interested in it, but I didn't quite know why. So I didn't have enough information about it. I went, well, I'd love for them to still consider me, but I can't go to meet them in person. And then I ended up being cast anyway. So it was felt like kismet. And again, I thought, I was supposed to do those four episodes going through the, I don't know how well you remember season one, but going through the coup. And then I think at that point, I'm I'm guessing here, I'm wondering whether they didn't quite know who would be fired and who would be loyal to whom. Like they hadn't quite sorted it out, but I'm imagining that. And then, because they said you might come back at the very end. And now I'm realizing they meant for the wedding, but, uh, you know. Anyway, they ended up writing Jerry into every episode. And Jerry very cleverly avoided, you know, sidestepped the moment of truth in that episode and kept herself alive. And therefore, Jay kept herself alive in the series. And I just, it, I made it sort of a pet project. I loved the part because you could tell they were open to really developing a unique specific, particular, oddball character, but they were also open to following my lead a little bit about it. And like, I remember one of the writers saying, your glasses or your hairstyle, your eyebrows, or you're like, you're telling us who the character is as we go. And and yet I felt they were telling me who the character was. So it was a, definitely a collaboration. And then it blossomed into a regular role. And then last season, a, a meteor role. And a fan favorite role. Fan favorite role, but... You know, I wouldn't have guessed any of that going into it. I was just, I just thought it was a fun, you know, an obviously well-written, well-cast, well-produced HBO show. Why wouldn't I want to take part in it? And then it turned out into this really exciting thing. What do you think it is about her that has people so enamored with her? Several things. I mean, I, I could be wrong because I'm in a blind spot. I, I play the character, so I can't really imagine what it's like to see it without any investment. But I would think that it has to do with the fact that the the Roy family are so awful and that it might be fun to have that character that reacts to them, has the private asides, and that you get to see someone be like, oh man, all the time, and rolling her eyes or biting her lip or like, okay, you know, like dealing with everything and putting out fires. And that, that might be sort of fun for people and that she's so, the character's so nicely grumpy, like she's not having it a lot. Like she had, you know, she's, she's keeping herself from getting fired, but she, so she's sidestepping things. And I also just think there's maybe the time is right to have a middle-aged professional 
female character who knows more than anyone else in the room, is very like a cagey veteran who, you know, artfully avoids conflict when she can, but is totally up to the conflict if it comes her way, and who really knows all the players. It's kind of fun. She's the conciliary of the group. I think it's maybe the timing is just really right that people are responding to a woman of a certain age who's got a lot of power and expertise and who's kind of quietly without whining and falling apart the way everyone else does, quietly, steadily, stealthily staking out her claim. I think that must be satisfying for an audience about now. And not just not just my demographic, but people. It's almost like a zeitgeist, I think. For sure. I mean, she is not as morally far gone as some of the major characters are. She's like, she's still shocked by the things in the Roy world. But but that doesn't absolve her either. So how do you find the shades of the character? Well, I mean, okay, so she's a lawyer. Now, I'm not a lawyer, obviously, and I don't even know that many lawyers, but I feel like the jo- their job is to sift through the law and, and represent their client. It's a kind of a, I don't want to use the word mercenary, but I think actors are like that. We're not to judge our characters. We're to, we're to put ourselves very um, selfishly right in the, in the mind's eye of the character and go after what the character wants and not judge it, not judge if she's likable or not judge if he's appealing, not judge if he's morally correct. It's not a PC profession. You want, you want, if you're playing Hannibal Lecter, you don't want to make him likable. You're just going to try to make him real and as dimensional as possible. And that's the fun of it. So they're both kind of coolly just not judging their character. They're, they're trying to figure out what their character would go after and do. So I think that's how I relate to her a little bit. Do you and Jesse talk, Jesse Armstrong, who's the creator of the show, do you and Jesse talk much about who Jerry was before she came part of the Roy world, like who she is outside of it? Um, well, what I would say about that is that, you know, when it started, again, no one knew how much Jerry we were going to see in the story. When it got picked up and they were going to make a whole thing that, you know, unlike, say, Rectify, this is a show with a myriad of executive characters. So even though they're not big parts and the show, the storyline isn't immediately about them, they have to be accomplished, capable. They're, they're all people that are not, that have to be sort of developed. So I think they very cleverly, all of them, the producers, directors, uh, Mark Mylod and Jesse particularly, and Frank Rich, I think they were all like trying to think how to cast it so that people seem dimensional and rich and they have done a very good job with that. Like, so I think he was kind of giving me some wiggle room. The way I remember it is that we made some sort of guesses about it. I refer to my husband. The husband was also Shiv's godfather that's mentioned in the first episode that I shot, first scene that I ever shot. So I, I kind of concocted in my mind, and I don't know if I ran this by Jesse. I, I think I assumed that my husband that passed away long ago, had also worked for Waystar. And maybe I had sort of followed in his footsteps. One case in point is I ventured to Jesse one time. I was like, I wonder if maybe she has two grown daughters. Jerry has two daughters. We don't need to know about them. But in her backstory, she's got two daughters. And they it's not like in a strange relationship exactly, but they're a little scared of her. Like they're respectful. They want, they value her opinion they have her on a pedestal, but she's not a cozy up to mom, you know? And Jesse was like, huh, that's interesting. I'd always, now that you mention it, I realized I, I'd always imagined her childless. I don't know. So let's just stick a pen in it and let's not commit to it. 
But then much later, and when we were doing the Senate hearings, at one point I had to improvise some of my answers. So I did some improvs. And at one point, the the, uh, Democrat senator asked Jerry, do you have any children? And I said, oh, I have two daughters. (laughs) I just, it just came out of my mouth. And then she said, well, how would you feel if they were on a Waystar cruise? And I said, well, given all the oversight that's now in play, I don't think there's a safer vacation for them, which was like, I just stole it. I just stole it from, I don't think they used that, but I remember Jassy coming out after they said cut and laughing. I went, oh, you got your daughters in there. And then I thought it was sort of a one-off thing and that they may or may not use it. However, in the last episode, David Rashi's character makes a crack. Like, what about your two daughters flying first class on their company dime? And we have a little spat. It's kind of in the background, but that was really fun and satisfying and an example of how collaborative. That's so interesting. Because, you know, I was going to ask you, like, if there was a separate show that was centered around Jerry, like, what do you think that looks like when we do go home with her? Like, What is she doing to unwind from this stressful job? Does she have close friends that she's talking to about the Roman situation? Like, if we're focused on her, what does that world look like? Well, off the top of my head, you can paint yourself in a corner if you you make too much of a backstory up and then it doesn't jive. Then you're kind of, it can break your brain. So I, I try to live in this very improvisational mindset that is adaptive, you know, adaptable. Off the top of my head, I would say she would not speak a word about the Roman thing to anyone. I think she's very good at being the vault. It's too dangerous a piece of information for him and for her and for the company, unless there's at some point it could serve her. I just think she's too self-preservational. I don't think she needs to confide in people. And then I think that she, I had this one thought one time that we didn't get to use when we were talking about the scene in Jerry's apartment when she gets the infamous phone call. At one point, I was like, I don't know which room, because they have, you know, when when you do a TV show, you have a lot of these departments, so you might intend for it to be in the kitchen of the apartment, but then when they scout the locations, the best shooting location is in the living room or in the bedroom or something. So I said, well, if they're in the bedroom, here's what I thought, Jerry, what would be interesting little telltale moment of Jerry's is if you see her on her side of the bed, the other side of the bed where your husband would be is just her work, her files and her laptop all piled up. You know, she just makes the bed around her. <laughs> and I don't know where that came to me. But I thought, like, that would be such an insight as to Jerry, like just a workaholic. But by the same token, she has like a cleaning person come in every single day as if it were a hotel and run a tight ship. But they know what business things not to touch. My laptop definitely sleeps in the bed with me for sure. So I would identify with that. It's 1945. Hitler is defeated. America is looking to outsmart a new enemy, the Soviet Union. To advance in rocketry, aviation, and chemical weapons, America recruits scientists and engineers who fueled the war machine of another nation, Nazi Germany. Operation Paperclip brought the Third Reich's most ingenious and often villainous men to the United States. The War Department thought if we let them go back to Germany, some other nation will pick them up and use them against us. His file said he was 100% Nazi, a dangerous type. Somehow, the file was changed and he came in. I'm Michael Ian Black. 
Join me and historian Monique Laney on the series Paperclip, funded by Amazon Studios and produced by LA Time Studios in support of the Emmy-eligible original drama series Hunters, starring Al Pacino and Logan Lerman. Available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We have to talk a little bit more about the Jerry Roman relationship, which just has everyone sort of loving what's going on and like confused about what's going on. It was like one of the most surprising developments of season two. Like, what did you make of it when you saw it was leading in this direction? Well, I did not know what to make of it. And in a way, I still don't. But with that's handy because I don't think Jerry does either. Kind of a unique situation because... Usually you want to know the answer to all those questions as an actor, but if, you're, if your character's bewildered and thinking on her feet, it's kind of nice to be in this innocent space where you don't, don't know what to make of it. So it's kind of unusual in that it's kind of, in my imagination, it's on ice. Like it's just the jury's out. However, having said that, I feel like the story goes that that little subplot was inspired by a kind of a improv that happened between Kieran and myself the end of season one, they do this thing where they sometimes just keep the camera rolling just to see what we'll do, <laughs> just to catch our behavior. And often they don't use it, but they have little bits of things to go from. And it was when we were in the castle for Shiv's, Shiv and Tom's wedding. And there was a scene between Kendall and Roman, and they were having a clandestine conversation across the room. And Jerry, there was just a shot of Jerry kind of clocking it, wondering what they were talking about. In, in those days, Kendall was thinking about the takeover. Uh, Roman was worried about the launch, satellite launch, and Jerry knew, knows about both things. So she's kind of watching him from a distance. And then they just kept the camera rolling. And so Kieran, Roman just wandered over to the bar where Jerry was sitting at the bar, at the party's bar. And I was drinking a pretend martini. He made a little quip like, oh, I need one of those. And I was like, uh, they can't make a martini here. Unless you're in London, you can't get a martini in this country. And we had a little... I'll, I'll have to make it for you. We ha- and it was a slightly, it was just a soupçon of flirtation to it, maybe. And then after a little uh, badinage, he wandered off out of the room and my character kind of looked like checked him out. And apparently when I turned back, he checked me out. And they, I think they got a kick out of it where they were watching on the monitor. I think over the off season, they were like, huh, maybe we'll just test the waters and see if there's a room for some kind of weird, twisted flirtation or something. And then I got to work the next fall. We did, um, first scene I remember shooting was Jerry and Roman watching Kendall do his press conference on an iPad in the hospital when we'd gone to see the thumb victim from the satellite launch. And Mark Mylod saying, just, you know, just cozy up to him, a little foreshadowing. And I was like, excuse me, what was that you said? And he's like, oh my God, has no one told you? Oh, how horrible. Well, here's the thing. And then then he kind of explained that they thought that maybe Roman had this like perverse, inexplicable Jones for for Jerry because she was so dominatrixy mean to him and that it might culminate with some kind of weird sexual encounter at some point, phone sex or something. And then I think it just kept going because it was, I mean, Karen and I have known each other a long time and we have a I would say a good rapport. And so I think that they just kept playing with it and then it became a fun storyline. 
there's a lot going on with that relationship. There's the sexual component. There's like the fact that they're confidants. There's that maternal part to it. It's very interesting what's going on. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yes, they have a reason to be liaisoned for work now. And then they have this whatever it is, chemistry. And then they have their history, which is somewhat compatible. The first episode we first seen both Kieran and I shot of the series is him asking me to step in when Logan had a stroke and me me saying, no, thank you. And him being kind of intrigued by that. If you look back and you see all the foreshadowing right there, even though far from what they intended, I don't think. Well, as you mentioned, you've known Kieran Culkin for a while, Kieran, who plays Roman. You've been in a play together and your husband, Kenneth Lonegren, worked with Kieran too. Did that make it weird, at least initially, to sort of enter this quasi-relationship with him on screen? And then talk to me about where Slime Puppy came from in that conversation, the phone call. Okay, well, the thing about Kieran is that he and I both share, he he is the king of snark. I mean, he is a snarky little, very funny, I mean, I have such admiration for him as a performer, particularly in this role. He's so loose and free, just, funny. I mean, he's just, this is a great part for him and he's just in his element. So I love working with him because he's so unbridled and funny and free. Um, We do share a sort of a certain degree of sarcastic humor, love of the sarcasm uh, off screen, you know. So I think that when we got a chance to have that together, we, we were in step. What was fun about it was how inappropriate it was. I mean, yes, it does bother me because at least his character is the one who wants it. He's the pursuant in it. You know, and my character is like, it's fun to play, but but hard because when I was working on that scene that we did when we were at the uh, Pierce residence, he and he comes in and ends up in the bathroom. You know, as Kenny pointed out, I was learning my lines and wondering aloud about what I was thinking in the scene. And he said, well, you know, she does not kick him out of her apartment. She protests, but she could very easily just raise her voice or kick him out. Like she's not scared of him. <laughs> so I, but I think she didn't expect him to knock on the door. I really think she thought that was one aberrant, you know, thing when she got the phone call. I don't think she thought that was going to be ongoing. So I don't think I thought of it initially as being some big, ongoing, bizarre, outsider kind of, you know, weird sexual relationship. What did your husband think of this development? Well, he kind of thought it all along. And and we just laughed because we thought it was very improbable. I don't know beyond that. We have a sort of pact that we basically stay out of each other's business uh, creatively, unless asked, because, you know, it's hard to work on things if you don't have some mental privacy with it. He th- he just thought he knows us both. He thought it'd be a funny combination if we'd have something to do with each other. How have you adjusted your view of the character as you've gotten more information about her? I'm not sure how I do it technique-wise. I don't have a fancy answer for that. I just am kind of fielding information as it comes to me with my instincts, I guess. Aside from Roman... I think I picked up on the beginning of season two that once my name was on that paper, even if I was just a figurehead, I picked up right away that I no longer had Logan's, you know, Laird became his confidant and his go-to right-hand man. He's kept dissing me and it was an unusual dynamic right away. I think whoever is, like once he names someone to be a successor, even if he means it as a, for show, he immediately doesn't like that person as much. And I had to sort of observe that from the scripts. Like, I was like, gee, I don't have the same status that I did with, with Logan. And then I was like, oh, well, that makes sense. He's not as fond of me now because my name's on there. 
I mean, this is like the Game of Thrones of the corporate world. Like, so do you worry about your character's fate on the show? Yeah, I th- no, I think we all do. I mean, that's the nature of it. And that's the fun of it. Jerry has to think on her feet and adapt. And, I'm, and, and thus, so do I. Last season as we were doing this, and I knew that there'd be, you know, Jerry Roman scenes coming, I would worry about it. And then I would just be like, just take one step at a time. That, that scene, for instance, at the Pierce residence, that scene turns on a dime. Every, every exchange goes from sympathy towards him to outrage, like to berating him, to noticing that that turned him on, to kind of enjoying that for half a minute and then kicking him in the bathroom and then being bemused and relieved and annoyed. Like it just keeps changing. And so I think that indicates that she doesn't know how to feel about it. And she's taking it as it comes and rolling with the punches. Well, as you mentioned earlier, most of your career has been in theater with occasional film and TV work. So how does it feel now to be on basically everyone's radar because of this show and Rectify? Like for some people, they're just discovering you because of the show. Like, do you find that frustrating? You know what I might have when I was a younger woman, but it's so funny because since I've been working on Rectifying Succession, I feel like I'm not as much in the mind's eye of the theater world. So my status has shifted. I'm not as I'm not on those lists as readily as I was. So it's kind of just where your focus is. And theater um, has in New York City a big audience, but it's it's in the city unless you're in a big Broadway hit with tourists that, t- that are on the tourist radar. But it's never going to be the kind of wide audience that a television has, and particularly HBO, and particularly a successful, you know, hit show. So, I mean, I I think I understand that it's part of how fickle show business is, and I'm just well used to that. Well, production on the third season of Succession was delayed because of the current health crisis. How are you feeling about eventually resuming production again? Like, are you nervous about being on set after something like this? Sure. I mean, how could I not be? I mean, but I have to say that of all the people that you could imagine working for in the wake of an outbreak like this, I feel like these are the savviest group. And I'm not just saying this. I feel like HBO is particularly uh, well-equipped to make wise choices and to be protective of us. Pat Capone, who's one of our DPs on the show, said, you know, this is what film crews do is they problem solve. And this is a particularly good one. This is a particularly crackerjack group. So if anyone can figure it out, it's us. Well, the fans are waiting patiently and eagerly. Before we wrap, our final question comes from our previous guest, Ricky Gervais. And as you might expect, it's a doozy. And that's why I'm laughing a little bit. It's maybe more of a riddle than a question. Here's what he asked of you. Okay. If the universe is only 13.5 a billion years old, and given the the speed of light and the occurrence of the Big Bang, why is the universe more than 26 billion miles? <laughs> I don't even understand that question. So I not, not only have no answer, I don't even remember how the sentence started. <laughs> um, what the hell? <laughs> that is Ricky Gervais being um I don't know him that's very silly and naughty I think that Jerry would box his ears and tell him to go in the bathroom work it out for himself take a scratch pad in there come out when he's sorted himself out 
You can tell him that from me, all right? <laughs> I will. When he asked, I was like, only Jay could like come up with an answer for that. Tell him I think he's a slime puppy for that asking that question. <laughs> so I think you'll do maybe a better job of throwing a question to our next guest, which is Watchmen's Tim Blake Nelson. I want to, he's so creative and he's a writer and he's an actor and I've known him for a long time, not super well, but I have known him. What immediately comes to mind is I wonder what Tim Blake Nelson is thinking creatively about writing and characters and situations that result from this pandemic. What is cooking in the back of his mind about something he would want to creatively express about people in a lockdown? Great question. I don't think it'll stump him like the Ricky Gervais one. If it doesn't go anywhere, ask him the Ricky Gervais question, okay? (laughs) I will for sure. Jay, thank you so much. It was a pleasure speaking with you. My pleasure. That's it for the 15th episode of Can't Stop Watching. I am your host, Yvonne Villarreal. Our producer is Paige Heimson, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress-Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin, and a special shout out to Elena Howe for booking the guest for this podcast. Come back next week. We're talking to Tim Blake Nelson. I found that when I put the mask on, I just had to do very little. And given a career in which I've been asked to do a lot with characters, you wouldn't call a lot of the characterizations that that I've done subtle. And to, to get to play a character who finally was quite subtle, restrained, quiet, laconic, was really an unexpected piece of luck in getting to play Wade. If you like Can't Stop Watching, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Matt Brennan, and Clint Shaw. We hope you're enjoying this podcast created by the journalists at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe, because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Thanks for listening and see you next week.